Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of Anatomy of Tone. In this week's podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the Seeker Electric Effects Tone Bender MK1. I love Tone Bender circuits. Finding a great MK1 Tone Bender can be a little tricky because of the variations that exist. It is as much about taste and knowledge as it is finding the right components. Luckily, I have found quite an amazing builder, Mike Timpson from Seeker Electric Effects, who has built a fantastic sounding MK1. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to talk about the MK1 circuit, what makes it special, what the characteristics are, pairings, all the above. I also want to take a few moments and talk about some of the terms, or I say one of the terms about music theory or philosophies that ends up paralyzing a lot of people. Let's jump right in. So when it comes to music theory, I think there's this notion that we're discussing rules. Here is the rules to music. Well, music doesn't quite work that way. And I think if music was approached, I don't know, at least from an educational point of view with a mindset that didn't lean on the idea of rules so much, I think it would really save a lot of people frustration and feeling like they're being hindered or limited by how some people are teaching some of these concepts in music. So what do I mean about that? Well, I think music is a lot like cooking and baking. I think you don't have to be a great cook or a great baker to understand this. Let's take a quick look. So cooking there's a lot of flexibility in cooking. You can add things and modify recipes a lot. It's very interactive and improvisational. It's a lot harder to be as improvisational with baking. Often you put something together and you have to put it in the oven, you let it bake, and you don't know what the results are until it's done. And baking tends to be a lot more scientific. You have to be a lot more exact in your measurements and your plan. But cooking, you could start out in some ways from scratch and kind of build as you go along and often end up with some good you could you could test what you're doing as you're going. Well, I think there's there's two mindsets when it comes to music. I think like being a session musician and playing in an orchestra and playing other people's music and reading charts is very much like being a baker. You, there's a lot of times where you have to play the recipe exactly right in order to make sure everybody sounds right together and that you have the desired end result. But composing a lot of times is a lot more relative to cooking. It's a lot more malleable. It's a lot more improvisational and adjustable. Sometimes people teach composition. They teach music theory from this place that there are these rules. And the problem with that is that music has changed so much through music history. The borders of what the rules are are always changing. So if we looked at early music from Palestrina, there's very strict counterpoint there. And there's a lot of things that they avoided in that time that say even Bach started to integrate his music with certain distances. And obviously by the time we got to Schoenberg and Berg and other composers, like they reached a whole different level of, of what they accepted with dissonances or rules. And so for that way, like, I think you have to think of music as recipes. And if you want to create something that sounds like Baroque music, then here's the basic recipe that you start with. And then you can change and exaggerate at will. If you want to create something that sounds like 20th century avant-garde music, then you're going to look at what the recipe is for that music and then change at will, right? And the same thing goes for bluegrass or rock or punk or jazz. And I think that sometimes when people are learning theory, it's pushed on them that say maybe the rules that existed in Mozart's time are 100% relative right now. 
you know, and there was a time in music where you didn't use parallel fifths, meaning if you played a fifth, a root and a fifth, take up power chords in music, you didn't move them in the same direction together. That was really frowned upon. That's not something that we did, but those walls started to get broken down in what, maybe the late 1800s, or early 1900s, and now they're all over the place. I mean, think of Black Sabbath, think of a lot of rock music that's built on the fundamentals of, of parallel movement, as well as a lot of the impressionistic music from like Debussy and Maison, right? So they're really just recipes to create certain sounds that exist in certain eras of music. Don't feel like you have to live within those confinements as a composer. If you're a musician, there's a lot of times when being a session musician or playing on a gig that you have to confine to rules a lot more in order to make sure that you deliver what is expected of you. But as a composer, there's a lot more freedom in the composition process to be experimental. And I encourage you to check out a bunch of different recipes as much as you can. See what recipes Philip Glass or Steve Reich was using to create minimalist music. Trying to understand Maison and his use of modes of limited transportation. Try to understand a little bit of how counterpoint works and why they devised the system and eliminating parallel movement of perfect intervals to maintain the integrity or say the individuality of each line. Why are they using these recipes? And you're going to find you know, there's certain things that you have to do if you want to make a hamburger. Right? There's certain things that you have to do if you want to make a, a curry. Right? So it, it applies a lot to music that same way. But don't feel or don't let anybody make you feel that if you don't follow rules, and I, I just object to that word, they're not rules, they're suggestions, they're recipes. But if anybody is trying too hard to push you into anything like that, just remember that Anytime those rules, if they became rules, and really they were, again, just recipes, game became too commonplace, then composers rebelled against it. If it got too tonal and too strict with everything being in harmony, then people rebelled against it and wanted to hear more dissonance. So there's always changes happening in music, and you could be part of that change and yet incorporate a lot of ideas that have happened from the past. So theory doesn't have to hold you down, not at all. It's just like having a, a recipe book with a bunch of different recipes in it. And it can actually allow you to be more creative and express yourself more easily. But it's as long as you don't treat it too much like a prison salary. You don't want to confine yourself to think that any of these things, you have to only limit yourself to following a certain set of directions or rules. If you listen to some of my previous podcasts, you know that I'm a pretty big nerd when it comes to fuzz pedals. There's so many variations within fuzz pedals, within even the same circuit, that it makes it quite an exciting world to venture into to find different colors and ways to express yourself. 
One of my all-time favorite fuzz pedals is the Tonebender MK1, Mark I. This was originally released under the Solus Sound name, and the inventor was Gary Hurst. So the story behind the circuit is that session musicians in London were using the Maestro FZ-1, which was the first commercially available fuzz pedal. It's the sound of the Rolling Stone Satisfaction, and I also really believe it's the sound of the Ennio Morricone Spaghetti Western guitar vibe uh, and on many other hits as well. The Beatles have been pictured using the Maestro. It's on Adventure's Tune. So it was one of the, the more recognizable early sounds of fuzz, uh, but it didn't have as much sustain. And apparently some of the London guitarists were wanting a fuzz that had a more sustained saturation to it, more, more buzz to it. Because the Maestro, even when fully up, has some buzz, but it's not nearly as saturated as we think with a lot of modern fuzz pedals today. So Gary Hurst designed the Tonebender MK1, and the first model was all hand-built, and it came in these wooden enclosures, and they didn't last very long. It was very intensive to make, so I think to help speed up the process, they switched to these metal wedge enclosures that were painted gold, and these are the ones that we more recognize as being the MK1 model, but there were actually some made before the gold painted wedge models. Now the MK1 circuit didn't last very long. By 1966, after one year of the MK1 production, Gary Hurst started the MK1.5 version of the Tone Bender, which is considerably different. And the MK1.5 is really the predecessor to the Fuzz Face, which is Dallas Arbiter Fuzz Face. Fuzz pedal is one of the most widely known fuzz pedals. And this has a lot of similarities with the MK1.5 and the Tone Bender. Now the MK1 versus the MK1.5 are very different sounds. Now the MK1 is a three transistor fuzz and the MK1.5 is a two transistor fuzz. The MK1.5, much like the fuzz phase, has more of a bassier and mid-scooped sound to it. The MK1 has much more mid-range definition, is punchier, has a bit more gated, spitty vibe to it. Now the MK2, which came out, I think, Maybe that wasn't even a full year after the 1.5 came out, but it's not. It was 66, 67. Then the MK2, which Jimmy Page popularized on the first Led Zeppelin record, went back to a three-transistor model. Now, it sounded different still from the MK1, though, even though it had three transistors in it. Now, it didn't have the gated, spitty, upper mid-range push that the MK1 did, but it did have some similar characteristics in the way it behaves when you roll back the volume knob just a tad, which by the way, was also a different sound than when you roll the guitar volume back using the 1.5 circuit or the fuzz face circuit. The Gary Hurst original tone benders were released under the Sola Sound name. There was a music shop in England, Macari, I think is how you say it, M-A-C-M-A-R-I, which essentially was distributing Gary Hurst's tone bender pedals. So the early tone benders had the Sola Sound name on it. Now over time, the circuit got licensed to other companies such as Vox and Marshall. And so there's a lot of variants on the circuit, but the original was the Sola Sound Tone Bender, which the MK1, MK1.5, 
MK2, MK3 all got released under that name. I'm really fond of the MK1 tone bender. I think because of its lineage to the Maestro FZ-1. I'm a huge fan of the FZ-1. I love that sound. I have one that I use a lot on sessions and gigs, but there are times where I want something that's reminiscent of that, but maybe goes a little bit further. And even though the Tone Bender MK1 has its origins in the circuit of the Maestro FZ-1, they're not entirely the same thing. What's interesting about fuzz pedals that were made in the 1960s is didn't really have the quality control standards that we had now. There wasn't the same focus, I would say, on the components and what makes them sound the way they do or what qualities guitarists might appreciate. In other words, they designed the circuit and they just got transistors and the parts in and they just, if they said the right value, they put them in the pedal and they just rolled with it. They used whatever they had. They weren't really necessarily testing every pedal to bias them to check out the, the values of each of the transistors and the components. They just put them together and rolled with it. Now, because of this, all of the vintage fuzz pedals sound remarkably different. Some of them don't sound good at all. Some of them sound completely amazing. And it's really hard when you're searching through old fuzz pedals to find what you would call the poster child of, of what a tone bender is supposed to sound like. Now, especially the tone benders, because the MK1 tone bender is one of the fuzz pedals that we have the least examples of. There aren't that many left and very few people have them and they're so expensive. And even if we were to compare those, they would each sound completely different. So it's a, it's a bit of a difficult world to delve into to try to figure out like, okay, well, this is the benchmark sound for a tone bender where it's a little easier with fuzz faces or there's some other fuzz pedals too that they were just made in, in more quantities. So more have survived. There were similar issues with the Dallas Arbiter fuzz faces. Guitarists used to play through many of them to find the ones that were really great. Part of the reason for this is when I was mentioning about the values of the transistors and everything is that they allow what they call tolerances, which means a variance in the values that they can basically stamp them with. Right? So you could basically say it's, it is this, but there's a sliding scale of, of the direction of what, what those numbers can mean. Now, a lot of modern pedal builders, such as Mike Timpson from Seeker Electronics and Mike Piera from Analog Man, they're taking the time to check the value of every component that they're using to get an idea of what that pedal is going to sound and how it's going to react when it's put together. And that was something that didn't happen in the 60s. So actually, in today's world, you can get a much more consistent fuzz pedal or have a much better idea of what it's going to sound like than you could in the 1960s. Now, this is mostly the case with Germanian-based pedals. So in particular, um, Tone Bender MK1s, 1.5s, um, MK2s, uh, Dallas Arbiter Fuzz Faces, um, uh, the Germanian model ones, not so much the silicone ones. But I mean, I think the transistor issue is is across the board uh, an issue, but the germaniums are just a little more cantankerous and require a little bit more patience to get set up right. And there is a bit of skill in biasing them and just knowing how everything's going to work. Like you can essentially look at a schematic to a Tone Bender MK1, get the parts and put it together and have it turn out sounding awful. So despite just buying the parts, which you'll hear people say sometimes, oh, I could buy all those parts for 
one one hundredth of what it cost for me to buy one from this company. But the truth of the matter is that much of making a tone bender, MK1, MK1.5, MK2, MK3, um, and a fuzz face, what makes them sound good is the people that are that are biasing them and tuning them and checking the values. Like they know what they're supposed to sound like and they make sure each one sounds great. So they're doing a lot with their ears and that's the part that can't be accounted for in a schematic. I've been looking for a great MK1 build for a long time. And for the longest time I wanted one of the historic reissues, but I just wasn't ready to part with 11 or $1,200 for a vintage MK1 rebuild. I started researching because I wanted to find out why are some of these MK1 tone benders so expensive? And, and is that the only route to go to get a real MK1 sound? And one of the things I found out in my research is that some of the pedals that are that much money are approaching it more from a historical recreation perspective. So they've gone to great lengths to make sure that the same exact feet are on the bottom of it, which requires like special construction so that they're getting just the feet alone, custom made. The enclosures are custom made and hand painted like the original ones were. They're really trying to manufacture them in the same exact way as the original MK1s were manufactured and they're using new old stock components. Now, there are other companies like Seeker Electric Effects are still using new old stock components, but they're not going the historical route so much now. Mike Timpson from Seeker Electric Effects will house his MK1 tone bender in a wedge style box if you like, and they look great, but he's not by any means trying to exactly recreate every meticulous detail from the original tone bender. He's making the circuit and sometimes will make variation to the circuits based on the customer with the true spirit of the original MK1 tone bender in mind, but not from the collector's mindset of it has to be the same exact thing, everything down to the font. This seemed like a good option for me because as cool as the historical reproductions are, I didn't necessarily want that. I wanted a smaller housing. So I'm doing a lot of gigs, sessions, and jumping around to different locations. And a big pedal just takes up more space on a pedal board and is heavier. So the idea of putting it into a smaller box seemed appealing right from the get-go in that regard. I checked out a bunch of clips from Seeker Electric Effects online just to get an idea of what their MK1 sound like. And I checked out some other companies too. I really thought there was something about Mike Timpson's circuit, his version of the MK1, that really resonated with me. Like I said, there's a lot of variations between the MK1s and some could have more of that gated kind of quality. Some of them could have a little bit less of that gated quality and just be a little less uh, high-endy and warmer and and so they can sway in, in a couple of different directions uh, and of course Mike will make them that way if either way if you prefer that but I really was looking for one that was kind of um, had more lineage to the Maestro FC-1 and one that spitty gated sound with a little bit of that wild nature that was in some of the early tone benders because I really respond to that. I feel one thing that's unique about fuzz pedals and particularly the MK1 circuit is 
you really have to play them. And I interviewed Mike Timpson and there'll be a blog on my website where I also talk about the Seeker Electronics MK1 tone bender. One of the things he talked about in the interview in the article was about how you have to play a fuzz pedal. And that's very true. People that spend time with fuzz pedals, get to know them, really understand that you play them much like you play your guitar. The way you interact with it uh, can change the sounds that come out of it, adjusting your volume knob on your guitar, adjusting your tone knobs and your attack. And they're very dynamic. They're really fun devices. And I feel like more so than overdrive boxes, I, I, I get much more surprising results and have much more of a communicative relationship with the various fuzz pedals that I have than with the overdrives that I have. For this reason, I have a variety of different fuzz pedals through different circuits and sometimes even multiples within the same circuit. Different MK1s are going to react and sound differently. So it might be nice to have one that does the gated thing pretty heavily and one that, that goes in the opposite direction a little bit so you can get some of those MK1 characteristics and personality and either kind of shift it in either direction depending on what you're doing. Now, this is really if you're doing a lot of sessions and a lot of times you could just live with one of the MK1s, but just keep in mind that the varieties that exist here can really be used to your advantage when you're messing around with fuzz pedals. Let's talk about the gated sound that people discuss with the Tone Bender MK1s. You'll hear people say it's spitty, gated type sound. And it does a cool thing where as your sound decays, it eventually will get to a point where it cuts off, kind of like a gate. But unlike a conventional gate that will always just cut off at the same point, sometimes the tone bender is a little unpredictable when it cuts off. And this results in really neat artifacts and just sound. And sometimes it's surprising because when you think a note doesn't is going to cut off, it doesn't cut off at all. And it just like sings. And there's something about this circuit that when it's not gating, it is just like soars and it can really ring out in a way and almost have this like feedback sound to it, which I really can't get from other fuzz pedals. And I find it really exciting. And you'll hear when we play some examples that I have used this to my advantage for a few performances. It's one of the things that I will play off of on a session or on a gig is the fact that not only sometimes does it just like chop off the note as the note decays, but sometimes it'll really latch onto a note and it just almost feels like an infinite note. It's really exciting. Another thing I really like about the MK1s is they have more attack than other fuzz pedals too. So the fuzz face circuit, I would like to categorize that as being a lot softer and it's uh, more scooped and so somehow just shaves off the transient of your signal a little bit more. The MK1 allows a lot more of your transient to come through. So it cuts through a mix a lot more. You get some of the initial transient of the note more so than you do with a fuzz face or definitely with a big muff. So I really like that and it works in a lot of situations with bigger bands and stuff where you feel like you might lose the fuzz pedal if you have it on. You know, guitar players have discussed this being an issue sometimes that they bring a fuzz face to a gig with a bigger band. They kick the fuzz face in and they just lose 
the audibility and they could be cranking the amp, cranking the fuzz pedal up and somehow they still can't hear it, but they're really, really loud. It's more of a frequency thing that's happening and just the way that the, the fuzz face is voiced, it doesn't cut through a lot of large ensembles sometimes, but the tone bender has this wonderful upper mid-range boost to it and plus the allowance of the initial transient to come through more, it really helps it cut through a mix. Sometimes in larger bands, I really like using the MK1 as opposed to the 1.5 or the MK2 to just enhance some of the attack in my playing, as well as sometimes just turning the guitar volume down one notch. So if you're on 10, just turning it back on nine, just that subtle difference also with a tone bender can allow a little more attack to come through. This also works on the MK2. So the MK1 and the MK2 both offer this option of just lightly touching your guitar volume knob and allowing more attack but it doesn't work in the same way that the fuzz face or the tone bender MK 1.5 work. So those you can actually really roll your volume knob back and get this really warm, uh, lightly compressed sound. And the tone bender doesn't do that per se. It has its own unique interaction with the volume knob. I got sidetracked there for a second, but back to secret electric effects where I listened to examples online, talked to Mike Timpson and got a MK1 tone bender in this really cool goldish mustardy sparkle color. It's really a looker. It's just a unique color that I've not seen in a pedal before. Mike makes all his pedals by hand and sometimes he'll do custom colors or custom units. If you want a special paint job, you can ask him about it. I was really excited when the Seeker Electronics MK1 showed up. I was searching for a long time to find a MK1 tone bender that I really wanted to use and one that was in a price range that I thought made sense more for working musicians. I use a lot of expensive gear, but I often don't like to promote um, my podcast and my website I don't know, maybe stuff that's just for collectors. I always like to think about things that are being used in the real world rather than collected. So the sounds seemed amazing on the website and the price seemed reasonable, which still isn't cheap for a fuzz pedal, but about what I would expect to pay for a pedal that's made with this much care and detail. And when you see the pictures inside this, if you go to anatomyofguitartone.com, you'll see I have a blog up on the Seeker Electric Effects Tone Bender MK1. There's photographs and you can see the inside of the pedal. And it's just clearly the work of somebody that really cares a lot about what they do. It's very meticulous and, and well-crafted and a lot of patience and time went into it and you could you, you sense that and it makes sense when you hear it when i plugged in the pedal my first response was okay this pedal was really made by somebody that knows what they're doing and has really good taste the taste thing is just something that you don't know until you get the pedal and try it out that's really the thing that distinguishes one pedal from the other pedal and what's cool is there are a lot of great builders out there today and what's nice about the pedal making community and the small hand-built community is that you don't get a lot of people throwing shade at one another which i think is is really awesome everybody's pretty cool and i think accepting and understanding and appreciative that everybody does their own thing but the seeker electric effects tone bender mk1 just spoke to me and when i got it i knew that that was clearly the right decision and on that note there is one warning of a company i would like to just state i've written about it before on my blog but there's a company called the british paddle company now the british paddle company has had some controversy over the years 
the parent companies that they've been involved in have been engaged in criminal activity. There have been issues with the British pedal company and themselves and the trademarks that they're using and the branding and the language on the website. It's just sketchy and their pedals aren't true authentic recreations. I've checked out their pedals. There was an MK2 I checked out that although sounded good, there was some weird stuff on the inside. It, it worked, but it wouldn't have been how the original MK2 would have been wired. Now you can go on the web and look up. If you do a search, and you'll start to find some of the past of what happened with the British Pedal Company. I don't really want to throw anybody under the bus, but I really feel like giving them money would be the right thing to do. There's a lot of other amazing builders, such as Seeker Electronics and even other companies that, that might make a pedal, a fuzz pedal that you might want to try. And there are a lot of reputable builders out there. Some are very expensive, some are more affordable. They're all really good people, but just, just a warning on, on the, the British pedal company. So who used the MK1 Tone Bender? Well, there's some photographs of the Beatles using it. There's an idea that maybe Paul McCartney used it on Think For Yourself. There's a bit of debate if they actually had the MK1 tone bender that week or they received them the week after, or it's hard to tell. It sounds very MK1 tone bender-ish. That kind of is the sound now. Could it have been a pet box or a maestro? I don't think it's the maestro. There's a good chance that it's a Tone Bender MK1, but we'll never really know for sure. But I do know that the MK1 Tone Bender can get you that vibe. So that is a good reference of whether they used it or not. And that's a character of the MK1 Tone Bender. One of my favorite uses of it was Mick Ronson from David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. He used the Tone Bender MK1 with a Les Paul and he used a wah-wah and a Marshall Major amp. So that was his combination for a lot of those sounds. And he would cock the wah and pull his volume knob back a little bit. And he really engaged with the fuzz pedal in a number of different ways. Also, Jeff Beck used the MK Tone Bender on an early Yardbird song. There's other people that were big fans of this first run of MK1s as well. Let's listen to some examples of the Seeker Electric Effects Tone Bender MK1. I'm gonna start off using a Stratocaster with FSC 59 pickups straight into the Seeker Electric Effects MK1. That's gonna go into a Headstrong Little King, which is pretty much a black panel Princeton reverb with a 12 inch speaker. I'm using the Ampete 88S amp switcher. This really makes making a lot of these podcasts and just doing recording sessions a lot easier. It basically allows me to connect all my amplifiers, my tweeds, my Vox, my Marshall, my black panel vendors, all of them up to one device and be able to switch through the amplifiers instead of having to get behind them. And if I want to try different cabinets and et cetera, I could really just plug, I'm going to play the Vox now, I'm going to plug the Marshall. So this is what's making a lot of this possible. I'll be using the bridge pickup on the Stratocaster with the volume knob all the way up. I have an accompaniment track on this. It's kind of a bit of a surfy, loungy, 60s vibe. You could really hear some of the spitty gatedness that's happening. I'm um, also using the spring reverb that comes in the Little King reverb. It's a really wonderful sounding 60 spring reverb sound. Let's listen.
I also used a, a plugin after the guitar was recorded, and it was the PSP42. A little bit of delay, just add a little bit more depth and texture into the take. I'm still going to stick with the clean sound and the headstrong Lil King, but I'm going to use a 1964 Guild Starfire 3. <laughs> stick with the Starfire Headstrong combo with the Seeker Electric Effects MK1. I'm going to play more of a, a rock riff concept now so you can hear really like the Valkyrie like fuzz effect that the MK1 has. <laughs> switch amps I'm going to use a Vox AC15 and an SG custom with Gemini Mercury 1 pickups in it. I'm going to place the Seeker Electric Effects Tone Bender MK1 before an analog band mini chorus just to display what this sounds like in more of an alt rock kind of concept where I'm kind of thinking of this riff as being more like a pad like a synth pad would be doing but with a guitar part. Check it out. <laughs> You can hear that it's a very focused fuzz pedal. With that, I think I also had the Analog Man ADRX analog delay on for a very quick slap back, but I had the feedback up a little bit, so it was creating a little bit more reverberated sound in the background, as well as a Demeter Spring Reverb, which I really like. What really works in this context is that you can hear that the MK1 from Seeker Electronics is really focused, focused in the upper mids, and it has a tack to it. So it sits in a really great place in the mix. It's not really bassy. It's not going to compete with the low end of an instrument or a synthesizer or a piano. It's very focused in the mid-range, so it'll cut a lot more and most really can set up a great pad-like atmosphere, which is what we just heard. I'm going to stick with the SG and the MK1 from Seeker Electric Effects. I'm going to use the Demeter Spring Reverb, which I'm placing in this case after the amplifier. I'm using the Vox AC15 again. The thing about this take is that I rolled the, the tone knob all the way back on the SG. So the volume knob is all the way up and the tone knob is all the way back. So you get this almost like flute-like sustain to it.
I really love humbuckers with this fuzz pedal. Let's listen to a 335 with Voodoo 59 pickups in it into the Seeker Electric Effects MK1 into a Surfy Bear Metal. It's a very different reverb than what we were just hearing with the Demeter. So the Surfy Bear has a little more of that, that surf vibe. It does do a lot more than that, but it really can get that that uh, brash kind of a bright crashing sound. Whereas the Demeter is a lot smoother and is a spring still, but it has a little more of that almost a studio kind of sound to it. Now this is run into a Marshall Plexi and this combination, you just hear that the, the humbuckers really shine with it. Seeker Electric Effects MK1 in more of a rhythm guitar context. I'm going to use a Stratocaster with FSC 59 pickups plugged into the Seeker into a Victoria 35 115, which is a Tweed Pro Circuit. Really great again because it's uh, it's it's grainy and grungy, but it doesn't eat up a lot of the low end, so this would actually fit really nicely in a mix. I should add that I was using a Chase Bliss CXM 1978 reverb on that. It's one of my favorite reverbs. I use it all the time in the studio live for when I want more of a classic early digital reverb sound as opposed to some of the springs that I use. So for this next example, I'm going to keep the Stratocaster into the Seeker Electric Effects MK1. I'm going to place a Jeffrey Teese picture wah before it, which is, I think, the best wah-wah being made. I just love this pedal. No, it's something magical happens when you use it. It's just, it's, it, it sounds and just inspires you when you play. So this works incredibly well in the tone bender, which you have to be really careful about because germanium fuzz pedals do not like buffered or often anything else before the pedal has to be first in your signal chain. But there's some special circuitry inside of the T's picture wah that makes it friendly to put in front of old or, or old fuzz pedals or germanium based vintage fuzz circuits and it works remarkably well and you're going to hear it in this now i'm still running into the victoria 35 115 i'm using the mp88s to switch my amps around
let's go in an ambient direction. The first ambient example is going to be using the Chase Bliss CXM 1978 in like self-oscillation mode. So I had the Stratocaster running into the Seeker MK1 and I had it cranked up really high and then I hit a note, got it reverberating through the CXM to the point where it was oscillating. I recorded that. Then I used the a synth patch from a Prophet 10 to lay in some low end. And then I soloed on top of it using the MK1 into the um, Victoria 35 115. was also using the Tease Picture Wah on that as well. One thing I think that example demonstrates is the gated and wide open nature of the tone bender. It's like there's moments where it just wants to completely scream and then there's moments where it's trying to gate the sound. You almost hear the inner struggle within the circuit that's happening and that happens while you're playing and sometimes you get surprised by the notes that it latches onto and just lets wide open. You also get surprised by the notes it starts trying to gate and that interaction can change the way that you phrase things or the way you articulate things. I find that's one of my favorite I don't know, characteristics of the, the tone bender pedal is in these moments when it happens, I've got the pedal wide open and playing through somewhat of a hot amp. This is not a clean amp at this point. This is running into the Vox and it's, I'd say, mid-range breaking up. Right, so it's not completely clean. There's a lot of interaction happening between the guitar and the picture wah and the Seeker MK1 and the amplifier and the CXM. It's, it's very much like a, a chemical reaction that's happening between all those. And you're going to find that, that different fuzz pedals can um, activate that chemical reaction in different ways. Here's a solo guitar piece with lots of delay being kicked back. I would say that the, the repeat volume is, is very high. There's a bit of a different sound. You hear a little less high end on this through the Vox. Again, saturated and saturation is coming from the AC-15 and from the Seeker MK-1. And you also hear, even though that the, the, the sound is a little bit less bright in your face, that we still get some of that latching onto the note and, and, and allowing it to just be wide open and that, that subtle gating that's happening. But in a different context.
I was using the Demeter Reverbulator on that one, which is their spring reverb pedal, as well as the Analog Man ARDX20 analog delay. I'm going to create some experimental atonal sounds using a Vendor Bass 6 into the Seeker MK1 that's going to go into an SD3000, which is a Korg digital delay and it's modeled after the early Korg digital delays. And that is going to go into a CXM 1978. So I'm getting experimental here. I'm getting the sound going, hitting a bunch of strings on the bass six. And then I'm playing with the time knob and the feedback knob on the SDD3000. going to lead us into our lower tune instruments with examples using the Seeker MK1. So I'm going to start off using a baritone. I've got a Gretsch baritone that's going to run into this Seeker Electronics MK1 into the Victoria 35115 and afterwards being processed by the Chase Plus CXM 1978 as well as the PSB42 plug-in.
next example is going to use a Fender Bass 6. I'm going to play with my fingers into the MK1 into a Marshall. I really like playing with the attack knob on the Seeker Electric Effects MK1 to adjust how much of that zippery gatey effect I'm getting, as well as the volume knob on, on the bass. Even when I'm playing with bass, I still adjust that. And you could hear a lot of that gate happening on this one, that spittiness, which I intentionally set up because I liked that sound. I thought that was kind of adding an excitement to the performance. I'm going to now use a guitar pick with the bass six and play like a heavy riff with it. So again, this is the Seeker Electronics MK1 and a Fender bass six into a Marshall Plexi. Let's go for a very industrial-like sound using the bass six still and more of an aggressive sound, less less gatey, spitty sound. And I have the the attack knob all the way up on the Seeker MK1. Let's hear what the Seeker MK1 sounds like with a Fender P bass that has flat wound strings. It goes going to go into the Seeker MK1 straight into an Ampeg V48 vintage bass head. <laughs> going to do pretty much the same riff, but I'm going to make an adjustment. So in that example, I had the volume knob on the P bass just turned down a little bit to bring out a little bit more of the attack and the, the gatiness. So I'm going to turn the volume knob all the way up now. Let's hear how that changed the sound. <laughs> Thank you. 
last example is going to bring us back to guitar. I'm going to use a Gibson Les Paul with Voodoo 59 humbuckers in it. It's going to go into the Seeker Electronics MK1, and then it's going to go into a Vox AC15. After it's recorded, I used a CXM 1978 for reverb, just to get a little of that wash. It's basically a very Mick Ronson-inspired guitar solo. We so strongly associate the MK1 with Mick. I thought it would be worthwhile to do a, a subtle nod to his sound and his playing. Hope you enjoyed getting to know the Seeker Electric Effects MK1 tone blender. It's definitely one of my favorite pedals. I find it very inspiring to play. I think Mike Tipson has done a really amazing job with this pedal. He's a very fine builder and has a really great taste. I'd recommend you checking it out and just reach out to him. You can find him at SeekerElectricEffects.com. Very friendly and I think that you will not be disappointed if you check out one of his fuzz pedals. I know mine's a keeper. Thank you for joining me for episode 17 of Anatomy of Tone. Hope you'll join me for next week. And as always, if you're looking for guitar, drum, bass, music theory lessons, synth programming, composition lessons, reach out to me as well as if you need somebody to score or anything for you or write a string arrangement or horn arrangement or create any charts or play on your record. I do all of those things and I'm always looking to work on interesting projects. If you have any questions about the podcast or suggestions for future episodes reach out and let me know and hope everybody has a great week i'm going to leave you with a composition called alley cat strut which i composed mostly using a mellotron m2000d it's one of my favorite instruments i love the vibiness of it and there's a couple of real instruments on it and i did augment some real cymbal on there but there are a lot of the drum samples that are actually on the mellotron as well as the vibraphone and the upright bass the intention of this song was in my mind it was to look or sound like how a 1940s cartoon looked and think of this uh, seedy alley cat uh, kind of mobster in the 1940s and acting out a scene so i hope you dig the lo-fi crunchy nature of it <laughs>